0: minus ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and liftoff of the Cassini spacecraft on a
1: billion-mile trek to Saturn. We have cleared the tower, and the Cassini spacecraft is on its way to Saturn. the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday, the 7th of September 2017. Each fortnight, we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And this week our special guest is Glenn Nagel from the CSIRO NASA Deep Space Communications Complex at Tidbinbilla near Canberra in Australia. Glenn will be telling us how the Canberra DSN will be communicating directly with the Cassini spacecraft as it does its deep dive and grand finale into Saturn and transmits back to us the final science from one of the most successful and astonishing missions ever. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky, and I'll be giving a brief news roundup as usual. So let's cross over to Tidbinbilla in Australia for today's show. Hello Glenn Hi, I'm glad to be with you Today we are speaking with Glenn Nagel Who's from the CSIRO NASA tracking station Last October we spoke with Glenn About the Cherry gerasimenko 67P About Rosetta and the Philae mission And how the CDSCC, that's the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex Talks with about 40 spacecraft like the Voyagers, Juno, New Horizons and the Curiosity rover And today Glenn will tell us about the CDSCC's role in the incredible Cassini mission Glenn, can you give us some background on Cassini and how it originated, please?
2: So NASA has a series of... Different types of mission profiles They have discovery missions New frontier missions and others Which are missions sort of funded Up to a billion dollars To go off and explore other worlds Out there. And then they have what they call Flagship missions and these are the Really big missions, the sort of One to three billion dollar price Tags to go and do in-depth Study of a particular Set of, you know, answer a certain set of Scientific questions. So spacecraft like Pioneer 11, the two Voyager spacecraft, the Curiosity Rover, the Galileo spacecraft that went to Jupiter. These are all these sort of flagship missions and Cassini was one of these missions proposed in the very early 90s and had its origins a few years earlier with different concepts but to design and build a spacecraft to do an in-depth multi-year study of Saturn and its system of rings and moons. So in the early 90s that mission got up as a proposal. It was part of the decadal survey at That particular time to say a priority for NASA was to learn a little bit more about the Saturnian system.
1: Very good. And what's the role of the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex in this mission? So, our complex, of course, is part of
2: NASA's Deep Space Network. We're one of three stations in the world that provide the 24 hour coverage, two way communications via radio signals with the many dozens of spacecraft out there, including the Cassini missions. So from the Mission Control Center at the Jet Propulsion Labs in Pasadena, California, the mission teams actually send their sets of commands to JPL, who then relay them to one of the DSN stations, including us. We will then, in our appointed schedule, transmit those command sets off to the spacecraft. So the spacecraft basically gets to know where to go, what to do, what not to crash into, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and then what information to collect using its variety of instruments and send that back home at the appointed time in the schedule so that we can pick it up, process it, send it back to JPL – and then relay it back to the science team. So think of us being like air traffic control for the universe or the telephone exchange for space, getting the commands up, getting the data back every day.
1: Fantastic. Now Cassini's been going for quite a while. It originated back in the 90s. What are Cassini's achievements for science so far, Glenn?
2: Well, it's a number of things even before it got to Saturn. So it left Earth in October 1997, a seven year journey to get all the way out to Saturn using a gravity assist at Jupiter. Yep. And during its Jupiter encounter, it made studies of the planet, the planet's cloud tops, it tested its own instruments for what it would do later out at Saturn. So it was a good testing ground. It took some wonderful imagery of some of Jupiter's moons. Out of Saturn, though, first thing we wanted to find out was actually something about the ring structure. When they arrived there in July 2004, they were going to do this really daring approach. They had to fly just skimming over the tops of the rings of Saturn. So they sort of came on at the rings head-on or edge-on, and then up and over the top. But nobody knew whether the rings extended out a lot further, whether there was some finer, dustier and particle material out there. So the very first thing it did was to try to find out what was there. And, of course, in that daring dive at the rings, whether the spacecraft would survive. They didn't know a small particle with the speed the spacecraft was traveling could have literally ended the mission right then and there. And uh, the spacecraft flew with its big antenna dish facing forward, used it sort of as a shield. And, yeah, they recorded these multiple impacts and found out, yes, there was some materials there. There was a variety of density of different rings and some clear zones. And then they were able to skim up and over the top of the rings nice and safely. So as we arrived, we were finding out things. Over the last, well, last 13 years, the list has just gotten longer and longer of discoveries every single day. Yep. Learning more and more about the composition of Saturn's atmosphere. That was a prime goal for this particular mission. More about the dynamics of the cloud structure, its storms. Saturn, very different to Jupiter. Jupiter's very obvious, big, you know, cyclonic-type storms, huge Coloured bands of clouds racing around the planet, the great red spots there. Saturn is sort of the pastel-coloured world. It's far more subtle. It certainly still has the banding effect. It still has turbulent atmosphere, but maybe not quite as visually spectacular. But given Cassini was there for such a long period of time, it could go through seasonal changes at Saturn, as Saturn orbits around the sun. And so big storms did occur, wellings up of material from inside of Saturn spewing out the surface and then just through the process of winds and rotation of that storm stretching out and spanning the entire circumference of the planet, having a, a platform in place with a spacecraft like Cassini to be able to observe that Kind of activity actually occurring not just looking at say jupiter's big storms which seem to always be there uh, and rage for, for decades hundreds of years in some cases this is a storm that sort of came along and dissipated over the next few months so we really saw a dynamic world looking at the ring structures of course looking at the moons we've gotten far more details about the size of the particles in the rings everything from the tiniest dust grains up to pieces as big as mountains and and we can find out more about the density of the ring structures by unique radio science experiments that the DSpace network and our, particularly our Canberra station has been very involved in with having Cassini's radio signals transmitted through the rings. Wow. And we look at the variation in the signal to actually see what's the density, uh, the size of the particles in the rings. We actually measure ring particles down to just a few centimetres in size Not bad for something that's happening over 1.3 billion kilometers away. So that's just, you know, the moons, we could talk about the moons forever. The moons have all turned out to be amazingly surprising. Titan, the biggest moon that has an atmosphere, has liquid lakes on its surface, using a similar radio signal technique from Earth, transmitting and bouncing radio signals off the surface of Titan and receiving an instruments on the spacecraft to look at variations in the surface, to look at the lakes on the surface of Titan. And then, of course, the big surprise in the Celanus ice covered moon, very similar to Jupiter's Europa, but with an ocean below the surface. Cracks in the surface, allowing liquid water to spray into space. And Cassini was able to image these geysers spewing this sort of water ice crystals into space. And on several encounters, fly through those geysers, finding out that this was water, just the regular water we know here on Earth. It was fizzy with all sorts of natural gases. It was warmer than expected to be, and most excitingly, contained. Some simple and some very complex organic chemistry, the stuff of life. So we discovered not only an amazing dynamic planet, incredible rings, but a family of moons that actually had the story of life potentially there.
1: That is fantastic, Glenn. And a probe
2: was dropped in earlier? Yes, yeah, so the other part of the Cassini mission was the Huygens probe. This was a probe placed by the European Space Agency to hitch a ride with Cassini all the way out to Saturn. And in 2005, the probe was dropped into the atmosphere and to descend and land on the surface of Titan. We tracked it, actually. I remember being at the tracking station very early morning hours and watching the signal coming in. A little bit of concern, there were two recorders on the Cassini spacecraft spacecraft the a and b recorders and we were getting only one channel coming back from the spacecraft the second channel which was to carry some interesting science data from the probe as it descended unfortunately it appeared in the ultimate review a software error meant that that particular receiver didn't switch on and may have recorded data but never was able to get it back home so there's a little bit of a loss there but we had a kind of a backup at the same time as using our dish in Canberra, we had part of the use of the Parkes radio telescope up in New South Wales, which is like our station today, managed by the CSIRO. Yep. And they were able to actually listen in on the radio signal of the Cassini probe as it was descending towards the surface. Now, they couldn't interpret the data, but they were able to look at the signal, look at changes in the signal, the Doppler shift. Yep. And that actually helped the scientists to know about the actual spacecraft, the probe, swinging below its parachute as it descended down into the atmosphere of Titan and how crosswinds in the atmosphere were blowing the parachute around. They were able to look at changes in its direction of just a few meters, which again, for something billion kilometers away, more than a billion kilometers away, It was quite remarkable. So we got some great science out of it, even though we lost a little bit through that B receiver. Titan turned out to be a fascinating world. Descent images all the way down to the surface. The surface that landed on was a bit squishy. They described it like crembule, not a natural crembule, but a sort of an icy and methane, ethane-crusted surface. And the probe apparently broke through part of that surface. Didn't sink, but broke through into a more liquid layer underneath. Uh, Images showed little round rocks on the surface that seemed to have been changed by water or some liquid over time. They were smooth rocks, looked like they'd been tumbled in a river. And a view out to the distant horizon. So a probe landing on a very alien world, Titan but a world that has turned out to be very Earth-like in its processes and a world is very similar to the way the Earth used to be maybe about 3 to 4 billion years ago when life first appeared here. So Titan, a world with the organic chemistry of life, probably just needs another few billion years to get there.
1: (laughs) That's fantastic. Thank you, Glenn. Now, the Deep Space Network has sent commands to Cassini and its orbit has been getting tighter and tighter. And on September 15, coming up very soon, we've got the Cassini grand finale when it crashes into Saturn itself. Can you talk us through
2: why that is happening? So there's two reasons why. One is the spacecraft was originally designed to go on a seven-year flight to Saturn and spend four years there as its prime mission. If everything was still going well, then they would be able to continue the mission. And the mission itself has had many extensions over the last 13 years. But after 13 years, it's nearly out of fuel. So very little chance for them to do ongoing science, anything meaningful. So they decided, well... Let's go out with a bang, literally and figuratively. They thought they would go to a place that they could never have dreamed that they would have gone to earlier in the mission, and even probably even when the mission was originally planned. And that was to dive down between the gap between Saturn's inner rings and the actual planet itself. Now, what they're going to do, of course, is they've been doing these deep dive orbits, what they call the proximal orbits, as they're running out of fuel, using Titan's gravity to slingshot the spacecraft into these deep dives. And eventually, as you said, this last dive, which will happen on the 15th of September, will take it directly into the atmosphere. And that brings us to the second reason. And that's because now the spacecraft's nearly out of fuel. If they were to completely run out of fuel and then lose control of the spacecraft, and it was just continuing to orbit around Saturn, Yep. There was always a potential that it could crash in to some of those worlds like Titan or Enceladus that have the potential to support life. And we want to protect those worlds. And there is literally a set of mandated rules, which are the planetary protection laws. And that says that NASA and the other space agencies must protect the environments of worlds that have that potential for life. Wow. So what we need to do? Get rid of the spacecraft, and we could just get rid of the spacecraft a couple of ways. We could have just sent it out and slingshotted it completely away from Saturn, almost aimlessly wander in space, or crash it into the planet, disintegrating the spacecraft, being 100% sure that you're going to protect some of those worlds out there. So that's what they plan to do. As we speak right now, the 20th dive has just occurred. We're coming up to the next dive in about six days' time, and then on the 15th of September, just before 10 p.m. as Australian Standard Time. then the Cassini spacecraft will go directly into Saturn's atmosphere on its last dive. Burn up, and that'll be the end of what has been a 20-year odyssey all up of exploration.
1: Sensational, and we'll probably pick up a bit more science in that final dive as
2: well. Yes, in fact, they've actually been doing some great science already with the deep dives that they have. Just orbiting around Saturn, just broadly around the planet and the rings itself, you cannot distinguish between the mass of the rings and the mass of the planet. So we don't actually know the exact mass of each of those things. So diving down between the gap means you can study one way and go, that's the mass of the rings, (laughs) study this way that's the mass of the planet. And so we're going to actually determine that to a high degree of detail. Also means you can take out the magnetic field difference between the two and study more about the interior magnetic field of Saturn that's going to help the scientists actually learn something that you'd think of we'd already know and that's how long a Saturn day actually is when we think of an Earth day at 24 hours or just run right about 24 hours as we do one complete rotation but without any geologic features on the surface of Saturn you cannot sort of determine by looking at it how long it takes to rotate quite precisely. It's around about nine, just over nine and a half hours, but we don't know exactly. So these deep dives are actually helping to determine that as well. Of course, we get close-up views, great camera views with the rings and of the planet itself, and there's been some really spectacular views just in the last few months from Cassini, some of the best photographs of the mission so far. Much closer views because we're diving from the north to the south, we're getting close-up views of the huge hexagonal storm at the north pole yep. of Saturn, and the similar storms, a big cyclonic type of storm at the south pole, and yeah, they're just and they're learning about the ring density closer into the. To the planet as well, whether there are some very fine or thinner ring material there, there has been some observations of that. So, yeah, they're learning all the way right down to the very last day. It's going to be fighting for every last bit of data the cassini spacecraft that will be tasting the atmosphere uh, with its instruments sending this information home as it plunges deeper and deeper it'll take the last sort of final photos it will beam those back home but then it gets to a point where it's hitting so much atmosphere the spacecraft starts to vibrate to shake you know imagine like a space shuttle you know returning back through the earth's atmosphere a lot of dynamic sort of environment there so thrusters will start firing trying to keep the spacecraft stable, trying to keep its antenna pointed back to Earth to transmit that last data back. But once we start seeing those final thruster firings, the last sort of valley of the of the spacecraft to keep phoning home, we'll know that we've got less than a minute to go. And we'll be pulling every little bit of data we can out of that because in Australia, in Canberra, we get to play that final role for Cassini, receiving its very final signals, as we've been saying, its last breath of data at Saturn.
1: That's going to be totally spine-tingling, Glenn. Now, I know that you and Dr Corinne MacDonald, a colleague of yours, you're organising an event to celebrate the grand finale.
2: Yeah, it's because this is an event happening sort of late at night, it's not normal for our our visitors out at the tracking station. In fact, we're sort of actively encouraging people to go elsewhere, to maybe come together and watch this final event, which NASA will be broadcasting live on the internet. But we wanted to actually have a chance to bring people out to the station, a select few, the chosen few, if you like. And so we put out a call for... Up to 30 people who are users of social media in particular and who have an interest in space and particularly Cassini to be able to come and join us as our special guests to be with us for the final moments of Cassini's amazing journey at Saturn. And uh, I think uh, you may know one of those people. Oh,
1: yes. I'm stoked, actually.
2: So, yeah, you have been selected as one of our chosen few, as we say, to come and join us on that evening. And we have some great things planned. NASA runs events like these all the time in the United States. They're called NASA Socials. So we're running our own sort of CDSCC Social doesn't roll quite as easily off the tongue but it's going to be a wonderful afternoon and evening as we take these selected people to have a, a bit of a tour of the site to be able to get a, more behind the scenes about what we do and a close looks at the antennas we've got some special guests coming along from the jet propulsion labs and CSIRO to come and tell us a little bit more about the Cassini mission and we've got a few surprises that I'm not going to let you in on yet I want you to find out about those on the day We'll get all of you to share your experience on the internet via social media via Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and whatever form you like and to be able to tell as many people as possible in Australia and around the world about the important role that Australia is playing but just about the excitement of being a part of space exploration history and we'll get to share this with our equivalent group of members of the public who have been invited over by NASA to the Jet Propulsion Labs who will be getting to watch events as they unroll there so we're going to have this connection across the world as we have this connection across the cosmos with the Cassini spacecraft.
1: It's going to be one of the great events Glenn and for listeners we'd recommend that you get onto Twitter and follow at Astro Zero Glenn, that's capital A, Astro Zero, capital G, Glenn. And you can also follow Astro Rini, that's capital A, Astro, capital R, I, double N, E. That's Dr. Corinne MacDonald. Also follow Canberra DSN and, of course, at Cassini Saturn. And the hashtags to watch out for Cassini os that's Cassini A-U-S, and hashtag Grand Finale. Well, thank you very much, Glenn Nagel. This will be a phenomenal event and everyone's truly looking forward to it. And thanks to you scientists and communicators up at the CSIRO NASA tracking station.
2: Thank you very much and I hope everybody gets to join us and enjoy this uh, amazing moment. Don't forget to watch it all on NASA television at nasa.gov slash ntv. NASA TV, and you can watch it all there as it unfolds from about 9 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time on the 15th of September.
1: Fantastic, Glenn. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog-Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be talking with you again, Ian, and I anticipate that you may be in your tangent today talking about Florence Nightingale and her two moons. I indeed am going to be talking about Florence Nightingale, her
0: two moons, and a couple of other interesting uh, issues about asteroids and moons.
1: Fantastic, Ian. Well, in the meantime, can you tell us, Ian Astroblog Musgrave, what's up in the sky this week?
0: Well, what's up in the sky this week is asteroid 3122 Florence, named after Florence Nightingale. I'll talk about this asteroid a little bit more in the tangent, but if those of you who have a moderate-sized telescope in the next few days go out and train your telescope in the skies above Delphineus the Dolphin, you'll be able to see this asteroid by the time this goes to where the asteroid will be around about uh, magnitude 910, although this is a bit dim, it's well within reach of modest amateur telescopes, and you'll be able to see it uh, coasting through the sky, and that will be a great thing to see. I'll be publishing maps and guides to viewing the asteroid as it zooms away from Earth. That's the most exciting thing in the skies tonight, and I'll explain why it's exciting in the, in the tangent. Uh, the other exciting thing coming up is if you've been watching the western skies, you'll be seeing a pair of bright objects that are slowly sinking towards the horizon night after night. Yep. This is the bright star, Speaker, and the bright planet, Jupiter. Yep. Now, you'll be noticing that Jupiter and Speaker have been getting closer and closer And on September the 11th, that's a Monday, you'll be able to see the pair at their closest. Now, that's not going to be a very exciting close approach. They're going to be about three finger widths apart, but it's still quite interesting to watch them come close together and then go further away. Now, Jupiter has been our constant companion in the western sky for many weeks now, but over the coming weeks, it'll get closer and closer to the horizon and start entering into the early twilight. As a telescopic object, it's not going to be very exciting after about this week because it'll be a bit too close to the horizon to get decent telescopic observations. The moons will still be good to watch, and even with the turbulence of the atmosphere, you can watch the moons dance around Jupiter, and that will be a very nice sight indeed. Very good. Meanwhile, up towards the north is our friend Saturn. Now, Saturn is the site of some really exciting events on the 15th when the Cassini spacecraft finally ends its mission by a spectacular crash into the planet itself. Now, for those of you who in Australia who are listening and who have access to a one-meter diameter telescope, you can probably count those on the fingers of one hand. (laughs) Hello out there. Those of you who are listening to a podcast, I'm waving to the half dozen or so Australians who have a one-meter diameter telescope or access to that. If you've got planetary imaging capabilities and a fairly hefty telescope, you may be able to pick up the fireball as Cassini uh, barrels into Saturn's atmosphere. Wow. From the point of view of Australia, when Cassini starts doing its final burn, we'll be pretty much in the, the in the dark, so we should have a good chance of seeing the fireball as it occurs. Otherwise, Saturn's been pretty much our companion for several months now. At the moment, however, it's highest above the northern horizon around about when twilight's ending. So it's still going to be high in dark skies, but it's no longer at its highest darkest. So the window for good telescopic observations of Saturn is beginning to narrow to something like four or five hours after astronomical twilight and full dark has occurred. Now, let's move into the morning skies. The morning skies are interesting at the moment. Venus, again, has been our constant companion in the morning skies for many months, and it's been dominating the morning skies for quite some time. But again, Venus is sinking lower into the horizon, getting ready to pass behind the Sun and here in the morning skies in the beginning of next year. It's still quite good to see, although you generally uh, now have to wait to uh, late twilight to see Venus, but it's still so incredibly bright that even when the sky is very pale and you've lost all the rest of the stars, Venus is still quite obvious. But in the mid-twilight, as the sky is paling, you should be able to see Venus low to the horizon, and above that, the bright white star, Procyon, the little dog of Owen uh, the Hunter, and above that, the even brighter white star of is Sirius, the eye of the great dog uh, of the hunter Orion. So in the early morning skies, yeah, the light-up of a Sirius, and Venus will look very nice uh, over the next week or so. As the weeks go on, Venus is getting closer and closer to the horizon and harder and harder to see unless you wait until about half an hour before uh, sunrise. Now, one thing that's coming up, and we might address this in the, in the next podcast, is the daytime occultation of Venus. From Australia, on the 18th we'll see in the early morning a thin crescent moon very close to Venus. And later on in about morning, we'll see the crescent moon move over Venus. Now, this will be a rather nice occultation, but the problem here, of course, is it's a daylight occultation, and uh, Venus and the moon are only 23 degrees from the sun. So unless you're an experienced observer who has a lot of uh, experience doing daytime observations, don't even begin to try it. Any accidental exposure can completely destroy your eyesight in that moment. If you are an experienced observer and you've got a, a good position where you can hide the sun behind a rather large object like a building or something like that, something where just the simple breezes will not reveal the sun, if you can really block out the sun with something big and large like a building or a wall or a cliff, that you'll be able to get your telescopes onto uh, the thin crescent moon and Venus Now, they're actually going to be a little difficult to see. The moon is only three days off new, and so the thin crescent will be quite hard to see. You may need binoculars to see it. In a similar occultation several years ago, I had to see Venus in the daylight to find the moon, so you might have a little trouble uh, setting things up. Again, this is why it should be an experienced observer, someone who's not going to accidentally sweep their telescope around uh, directly into the sun while trying to find the moon or Venus. On the other hand, the sight of bright Venus winking out behind the thin crescent of the Moon would be quite spectacular. And for those who have got very good understanding of sunset observation, this will be quite a dramatic and interesting occultation to observe. Again, if you're setting up, you may want to start in the early morning when you can still see the Moon and Venus quite easily and see sunrises and the Moon pales, you've got a good idea of where everything is. So in order to keep an eye on where uh, the Moon and Venus are tracking.
1: Very good. Uh, and this is a good time also to remind people that never look at the Sun or you will be blinded. This is correct, especially with, telescope, with binoculars and telescopes. You can fry
0: your eyes in a fraction of a second just by accidentally sweeping across. You don't have to go. just go, oh, let's look at the Sun with my binoculars. If you're uh, sweeping a pair of binoculars around trying to find the location of Moon and Venus and you sweep too far off uh, into the sun, you can be instantly blinded. So, again, I emphasise, unless you're uh, experienced in doing daytime observations and unless you have a really big impenetrable object, not something like a tree where the branches can move and the sun can be revealed, some big impenetrable object in front of the sun and where it will stay there for a reasonable amount of time during the rotation, don't. Try. If in doubt, don't. Your eyesight is too important.
1: Very good, Ian. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us this week?
0: I do have a tangent. The tangent comes back to our friend 3122 Florence, the asteroid name for Florence Nightingale. And this has been a very interesting apparition of Florence. Florence is a near-Earth asteroid. It was originally discovered early in the 20th century and back calculating its trajectory. The close approach we're seeing this year is the closest Florence has been to Earth since 1890, which is uh, pretty cool. It's also the largest of near-Earth objects to come close to Earth since the entire class of objects was described. It's also one of the biggest near-Earth objects. At 45 kilometres, it's easily in the top five. And it's also one of the brightest. It's it's brighter than the asteroid Phaeton. Phaeton, as some people may know, is the asteroid which generates the Geminid meteor shower. Phaeton comes in very close to the sun. We think what happens is the core, or stress from coming very close to the sun causes fragments of the rock to, to pop off these fragments and the dust from its formation, which results in the in the Geminid meteor
1: shower.
0: Yep. So Florence is a very interesting object. and I've got some nice photographs of Florence at its closest approach. But it was also being studied uh, with uh, the Goldstone radar. And one of the objects of that study was to try and find out yep. if, uh, if it had uh, moons. Now, moons are something that planets have. And if you have a moon, then you must be a planet. But it turns out lots of asteroids have moons, and one of the first asteroids discovered with moons was the asteroid Ida, which was seen in a flyby, a a spacecraft flyby, uh, by the Galileo mission. And who can tell me where the Galileo mission was going? Jupiter. Yeah, Galileo went to Jupiter. It was the first of proper Jupiter orbiter. Yep and on its way it passed close uh, by Ida and took some snaps and everyone was uh, more than a little bit surprised to see they had a moon called Bactyl. Yep. Since then, we've discovered that something on the order of 140 objects have been uh, discovered to have moons. In fact, that we know there are 330 moons of minor planets. Yep. Again, 63 have been uh, found around near-Earth objects and Florence <laughs> is one of the near-Earth objects. 23 around Mars crossing asteroids, 143 the main asteroid belt. some around Jupiter regions. So it turns out that uh, moons around asteroids are actually fairly common. Yep. If you want to be somewhat snarky, you can say that there's one of the trans-Neptunian objects had five satellites. But would you like to guess which uh, trans-Neptunian object with five satellites that is? Yes, Pluto. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Pluto. Pluto is a planet. Uh, people will probably be a little bit disappointed with that statement. But yeah, Pluto has five satellites, uh, but it's classed now with the trans, nip- trans- tuning, uh, objects. But there's so many other asteroids of various sizes that uh, have the moon. And so what they were doing is Goldstone radar. They are bouncing radar off the asteroid and, and using the reflection, uh, the radar reflections to build up a picture of the surface. Yep. and also to find any, um, any satellites. And they uh, we were able to pick up two satellites orbiting, orbiting Florence, uh, an inner satellite which moves fairly quickly and an outer satellite which moves a little bit more slowly. Yep. And uh, it, for those of you at home who are sitting uh, tw- uh, with your fingers twitching next to your keyboard, you can go onto a world-famous uh, internet search engine, and search for Florence asteroid moons. You'll be able to get some fantastic animations of the inner and outer moon going around Florence. Florence itself seems to be fairly ordinary. It's it's not really irrigated. It seems, it looks like it's relatively circular or potato shaped. No really wildly biting shape, and no. Really, and you've got hints of craters, but no really big divots like some of the other. Asteroids we've seen fly by Also uh, you may remember A couple of episodes back about the Asteroid Amalthea yep. the Amalthea had been discovered by Amateurs and Amalthea is A, is a, a far more ellipsoid Asteroid than Florence and the, uh, the satellite appears to be re- uh, relatively large compared to the two tiny satellites that uh, Florence has. Now, it's quite probable that these satellites may represent the remnants of a collision where fragments of the asteroid surface have been captured by the asteroid's gravitational field after something being slammed into it. And moons are quite common. Really, we could only see uh, moons of asteroids under three conditions. One, if we send spacecraft past them, one, if they come close enough that we can bounce radar signals off them and discover the moons through radar. And the other is the rare occasion, like we saw with 113 Amalthea, where the asteroid goes in front of a star and we have enough people along the path of the occultation shadow to pick up any small uh, moon. Yep. Again, really small moons would be much harder to pick up. So, relatively small moons are, are more likely picked up by radar. Uh, moderately sized moons can be picked up with uh, operations.
1: Very good. Thank you, Ian. And there is also something comforting in Florence in that I read somewhere that an asteroid only has to be 900 metres wide to become a killer asteroid, a planet killer, and Florence is about four or five times bigger than that. But the good news is that mathematicians and scientists have been working on Florence's orbit for the next 500 years, and it's not going to crash into Earth for at least 500 years.
0: That's very comforting to know. In 500 years, hopefully we will have the ability to move any potentially large planet bangers out of the way, or else the cockroaches will have a big surprise in 500 years or so.
1: (laughs) Very good, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian AstroBlog Musgrove. Thank you very much,
0: Brendan, for having me on and uh, chat about what's going up and on in the sky
1: at the moment. Next up, the Astrophys News. First up, backyard astronomy leads to explosive discovery. This is from ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, published on the 4th of September. In a typical year, there are predicted to be around 50 novae, nuclear explosions on the surface of white dwarf stars in our galaxy. Only a dozen or so are actually discovered each year, and some of these are so bright and powerful, they exceed the scale of scientific explanation. With the help of ICRA astronomer Paul Lucas, researchers at Michigan State University in the United States have observed a superluminous nova in unparalleled detail and proven a theory that explains the phenomena. The results published in the current issue of Nature Astronomy indicate that powerful shock waves amplify the explosions beyond any traditional scale for nuclear explosions. Astronomers have long thought the energy from NOVI was dominated by the white dwarf, controlling how much light and energy are emitted, said Laura Chomiok, MSU astronomer and study co-author. What we discovered, however, was a completely different source of energy: shock waves that can dominate the entire explosion. You see, as the explosion begins, a cooler, Slower wave of gaseous material is ejected, but right behind it is a hotter, faster wave that catches up, collides, and causes a shock wave that results in a spectacular explosion of heat and light. This stellar event that ultimately confirmed this theory was detected in late October last year. Paul Lucas from the University of Western Australia swung into action using a backyard telescope equipped with a spectrograph, an instrument that separates incoming light into a spectrum so that individual wavelengths can be measured. No one knew if it was a nova at the time, so it was important to get a spectrum as quickly as possible to verify what it actually was, said Lucas. It was very low down in the western sky, so I thought there would be few, if any, professional telescopes able to target the object, given its challenging location. Lucas reported his observations via an astronomer's telegram, alerting the global research community and confirming the outburst as a NOVA in the early stages of the event. This triggered the MSU research team to investigate further using NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, while Lucas continued to take optical spectra of the Nova until it disappeared into the glare of the sun over the following two weeks. Now that the theory has been proven, astronomers can use novae to better understand other supercharge explosions like those that mark the death of massive stars in galaxies far away. Next... FRB's fast radio bursts are in the news again. Astrophysicist and author Ethan Siegel is the founder and primary writer of Starts With a Bang, which features on the Forbes magazine website. In 2012, a series of nine bursts were observed by both the Very Large Array and Orisipo, four of which were seen simultaneously. For the first time, this allowed us to pinpoint the location of an FRB source, a dwarf galaxy, 3 billion light-years away. Now, in August 2017, 15 new FRBs are the first of their kind to exhibit multiple repeating signals at such high frequencies, making them a rarely observed phenomena, according to Vishal Gajar, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Berkeley SETI Research Centre who discovered the bursts. By utilising various forms of advanced software and instrumentation, including 32 parallel running computers and two of the world's largest radio telescopes, Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia and Parkes Telescope in Australia, yay, Parkes, researchers at UC Berkeley were able to acquire high-precision data to detect the extragalactic origin of fast radio pulses. The 15 pulses were detected within 5 hours, and 500 terabytes of data were collected during the observation. Now, whenever we detect a signal that we can't immediately explain, it's a very human trait to ascribe our greatest hopes or fears to it. In the case of a peculiar radio signal originating from deep space, that means the wildest speculations will involve intelligent aliens. But as much as many of us would hope that such a thing would be true, the physical properties of these fast radio bursts, even though they're repeating, tell us otherwise. With an estimated 10,000 of them occurring on a daily basis, and with a power source some 10 to the power of 19 times as great as the strongest radio signal ever generated by humanity, and with known astrophysical sources that can naturally generate signals of this magnitude and frequency, it's completely unreasonable to think this has anything to do with aliens. Still, the science alone is interesting enough to warrant not only investigation, but a remarkable sense of wonder. Yes, There are five top reasons why we can be very certain that the signals from Stephen Hawking's Breakthrough Initiative are not aliens. 1. They're too common. Based on the bursts we've seen, 10,000 FRBs daily. 2. The FRB signal is variable. The energy density, signal strength, and the time intervals are all irregular. Evidence of natural phenomena. 3. Active galaxies have produced similar radio signals. Supermassive black holes can cause them. The galaxy housing those FRBs possesses exactly this. 4. FRBs are 10 to the power of 19 times stronger than humanity's strongest transmissions. They're all at least that powerful. No micro-FRBs have been detected. 5. Many astrophysical explanations exist for FRBs active galactic nuclei and magnetars are common no aliens are necessary sorry mimi mimi And now from the journal Nature in a report by David Castavecci. A new kind of gravitational wave sighting is possibly caused by colliding neutron stars. Astrophysicists may have detected gravitational waves last week from the collision of two neutron stars in a distant galaxy. And telescopes trained on the same region might also have spotted this event. Rumours to that effect are spreading fast online, much to the researchers' excitement. Such a detection could mark a new era of astronomy, one in which phenomena are both seen by conventional telescopes and heard as vibrations in the very fabric of space-time. Scientists who work with gravitational wave detectors won't comment on the gossip because the data is still under analysis, but public records show... The telescopes around the world have been looking at the same galaxies since last week. The Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO, in Louisiana and Washington State has three times detected gravitational waves, ripples in the fabric of space-time, emerging from colliding black holes, but... Scientists have been hoping to detect ripples from another cosmic cataclysm, such as the merger of neutron stars, remnants of large stars that exploded but were not massive enough to collapse into a black hole. Such an event should also emit radiation across the electromagnetic spectrum, from radio waves to gamma rays, which telescopes might be able to pick up. So what could we learn from a neutron star merger? Gravitational wave signals from black hole mergers are brief, typically lasting a second or less, but a neutron star merger could yield a signal that lasts for up to a minute. Neutron stars are less massive than black holes and emit less powerful gravitational waves, so it takes longer for their orbits to decay and for the stars to spiral into each other. Longer events enable much more precise tests of Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity, which predicts gravitational waves, perhaps giving more clues to the origins of neutron stars. So, here's the problem. Do we respond to rumours spread on Twitter? Remember the disasters of pseudoscience via press release that accompanied the news of e free energy and desktop cold fusion. Yes, we can respond with great caution and wait patiently for peer-reviewed confirmation. If confirmed, this will be a great example of how Einstein's theory leads to obvious predictions, which leads to observations, which may continue to expand the field of gravity-wave astronomy and a deeper understanding of our amazing cosmos. Watch This space So that's the news See you in two weeks Radio Waze